This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Uh, you should note the sixth edition of Stocks for Long Run was just made available, so go out and get a copy. We're going to be joined today by one of my Wisdom Tree colleagues, Andrew O'Cronley. Uh, please note, Andrew and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting discussion today. We're going to be talking about some of the turmoil that came in the UK pension markets, what's happening in interest rates. Uh, Andrew has some background on that, but we also have a guest uh, from that community uh, that we'll be talking ex- uh, about that in, in great detail. But we're going to start the show, as we always do, with the professor, uh, Professor Siegel. We've got the sort of key inflation gauges, a lot of market reaction uh Tell us about what you thought about the latest inflation yeah. data. Well, when I saw, you know, coming in way well below expectations, I knew the market would rocket. Uh, wow. It took off. I think we had a thousand points in the 30 seconds. I um, uh, uh, measured uh, in the futures market, uh, of course, uh, when, when it came out. Did not surprise me. Um uh, and then on CNBC, I went on and actually reinforced it by saying that if we, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the, uh, the CPI shows five tenths of a increase in uh, housing, uh, which is of course ridiculous since housing is going down everywhere. I mean that's uh, that's a six and a half percent annualized increase, which is not happening. But we've talked about this many times, and I said if you substitute the true decline in housing, you would actually have a negative CPI uh, core, um, which is, uh, you know, really quite something. And anyways, uh, that did resonate among a number of of um, view, uh, viewers, uh, 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 panelists uh, that was on uh, the uh, halftime show. Um, and I think a lot of people in the markets are beginning to say, yeah, if you put the right housing in inflation really is is i'm in to say dead is wrong but the high inflation that powell refers to is uh is dead and um but but nonetheless i i just got uh, a source just sent me quotes that uh secretary of treasury uh janet yellen you know former fed uh chair um was in New Delhi making a speech, and, and she said, and housing inflation is still too high. So she doesn't get it either. Powell doesn't get it. The Biden administration doesn't get it. But I think people in Wall Street get it, and I think they're going to be calling back to you know, their bank presidents and everyone else and said, hey, you know what? We know, we know it was discussed in the November meeting because when um, uh, Chris uh, um, uh, Grauber of AP talked about it, he, uh, Powell nodded his head and, and said, yes, there are those two indices, and I like the, the wrong index, basically. But I'm sure several else today uh, in the December meeting, with more signs of this happening, uh, it's going to be brought up again, and there'll be a lively debate about what index to use. Uh, uh, more people are putting 50 basis points. I mean, 50 isn't even necessary. Uh, in my opinion, but uh, I think 50 and a pause would be welcomed by the market, um, to say the least. Uh, we still got, of course, another CPI. It comes out the day before the next FOMC meeting. Uh, and, of course, we have another employment report. We have several more um, uh, uh, obviously important reports. And we, and we Next week, of course, we have the producer price uh, index also. So, I mean, there's a lot of reports. We have more than four weeks uh, until the the next one, but uh, it 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 really 
I think, emphasize the fact that the Fed should be very near a very definitive a pivot. Um, and uh, uh, that's what encouraged the market. I, I think that this could encourage the market for the re- end of the year. Uh, it's surprising. Uh, I, I, if I, I think I'm right in saying the Dow Jones Industrial Average is less than 10 percent below its all time high, um, considerably less. Um, I mean, that's not <laughs> with a great rally in December. That's uh, in November, December. It's not impossible, although certainly with be surprising to a lot of people. Now, the S&P and the NASDAQ being weighted so much more heavily by the big tech stocks, that's going to be a, a harder chore and probably will not be reached uh, this year. Um, the other big item, of course, I think this week uh, is the bankruptcy of FTX, the crypto exchange. Wow, it's put a damper. I mean, we had a big rally in crypto yesterday because rates are down. But today, Bitcoin, as I, we're speaking, is down 5.5% again at 16,008. This certainly does not help the crypto space uh, at all. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think it's probably going to be weak for the rest of the year. Now, you know, I've never been a big fan of crypto, but I do. I've also seen the abuses of fiat money, and I also believe that the banking system needs to have a more efficient medium of exchange, particularly for international transactions. So, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin can have a place. But um, one thing I was asked when I was on CNBC, uh, 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 and I've never been asked about crypto before, but what's it in the news. And uh, what I did say was, well, I do remember when Lehman went under and the money market mutual funds and banks, of which I had a considerable portion of my wealth in, um, I was thankful the Federal Reserve were, were backing uh, those institutions. There is, of course, no such backing uh, for uh, the crypto space. So in, in the last uh, few days, you've had this major growth to value rotation, some of that just with rates. I mean, how much uh, the 10-year and, and even the two-year has, has moved down sharply on, on that inflation print. Uh, you, you, is How much of that is the rates move? How much of that is, you think, a new trend what's what's uh i, I heard your I comments think it's all uh jeremy i think it's all rates. i mean you know they are i mean the 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 uh the tech sector is a long duration uh asset uh and of course crypto also is correlated to the nasdaq which is a long duration uh, ex, uh exchange index uh and 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 it was so depressed uh uh you know selling off with crypto uh, the the day before that, any good news uh, just sent the, the shorts uh, scurrying. Uh, today, it, it continues strong. Um, uh, you know, Nasdaq's up two-thirds of a percent, and Dow is down about two-thirds of a percent uh, at this particular juncture. Uh, I But I, I still believe that the value will reassert its trend uh, of outperforming for the rest of uh, the year, even with rates going down, because I think one of the big questions now about tech is not just what interest rates you discounted at, but how fast are its earnings really going to grow? Are, it doesn't really still deserve premium um, uh, valuations uh, and ratios. Uh, now, I know some of them come way down. Some of them probably have come down to value territory. Uh, and, you know, I like Apple and a number of others that do have really good cash flow, et cetera, and so on. But, uh, you know, the NASDAQ, I still think, has a PE of 22, 23, um, while, of course, the S&P is uh, on next year's earnings is uh, 16, 17. Uh, and, of course, the value part of that is still in the in the 15. So, I mean, it, it still certainly hasn't been batted down to the levels and probably should not be ever down to those levels. But there still is a gap. And when there's disenchantment, as we saw at the end of the dot-com bubble, I, I believe the P.E. ratio actually deflated just about to the, the value of the market. Uh, and then, of course, it, it experienced a dramatic growth that not only lifted its prices, but also its ratio. And, and then, you know, it became a uh, uh, the fang that uh, virtually no one could outperform. 
You know, I, I, one I, I, before I, I let you go, one uh, one listener of our show uh, had commented and and wanting to from from we didn't have you right after Powell's conference, but somebody had commented that Powell. Uh, this comes back to the inflation print. Is is Powell's talking about? Um, using sort of backwards-looking um, inflation and and sort of forward-looking rates, uh, and and ask the question what, what what grade they would get in your class for using that type of measure. But talk about the inflation, you know, in terms of getting to real rates, positive real rates. The where are positive real rates, and and should he be using the backward inflation? No, he absolutely should not. I mean, uh, and he should not be using the backward inflation. I mean, just like year over year is, of course, a ridiculous. Well, measure to think about. I mean, I, I, you know, on CNBC, people said, "Oh, yeah, year over year, still seven percent has to get down." Well, that's not forward-looking inflation. And and by the way, uh, when I talk about the housing market being current, it's the way they do every other market. They just don't do it for housing. So it's not like I'm inventing a newfangled uh, way of doing it. It's just they don't do it for housing. Um, you know, for automobiles, they. You know, the average person keeps an automobile eight years, and when he or she buys a new one, its price is 60, 70, 80, 90% higher. They, people don't, the government doesn't consider that 90% inflation because they haven't bought one in eight years, but they, they virtually do that for renters. They do do that for renters and almost do that for, for people that own their own home. Um, and this makes a tremendous lag in, in that, which really distorts the statistics and probably was one of the many things that misled the Fed into thinking there was no inflation in 2021. Well, very good, Professor. Always great to get your comments. Thanks uh, for sharing thoughts, and we'll, we'll talk to you again next week. Absolutely. Bye. I'm going to now turn the conversation to our two guests for the hour. We have Andrew O'Cronley, who is a director on our asset allocation team, does a lot of work in model portfolios, thinking about asset mixes, uh, and Ben Klisselt, uh, who Andrew used to work with. Uh, I'm going to give let Andrew talk a little about his background uh, and introduce uh, Ben and Andrew. Thank you both for joining us here on Behind the Market. We'll talk a lot about what's happening in the bond market, the pension market. Uh, but Andrew, give give folks a little bit of your background, uh, and I'll let you introduce uh, your former colleague, Ben. Yes, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, and, and I'm very excited uh, to be here. I think this will be uh, a really interesting conversation on a topic that is near and dear to me. Prior to my current role at Wisdom Tree, I spent several years working in the liability-driven investment or LDI uh, business uh, at, at BlackRock, both in the U.S. Uh, and in the U.K., where I had the pleasure to work alongside and learn a lot from Ben. Uh, ben was previously the, um, you know, managing BlackRock's $350 billion LDI business in the UK uh, and Europe uh, and chaired the Investment Oversight uh, committee, uh, committee for BlackRock. And he is currently the head of uh, fixed income and treasury at USS Investment Management Limited. Uh, they oversee the assets of the USS University's superannuation scheme, uh, which is the largest private pension plan uh, in the UK. So um, I'll, I'll kick it over uh, uh, to you, Ben, to introduce yourself uh, and talk a little bit about uh, yeah what, what you're uh, currently doing now at, at USS. Thanks, Andrew. So yeah, I, uh, I run Fixed Income and Treasury at USS. Uh, as you say, it's the the largest uh, private pension scheme in the UK is the pension scheme for all our universities. So uh, plenty that you have heard of, like uh, Oxford or Cambridge, uh, through to much smaller institutions that you might not have done. And we have uh, more than 250 uh, institutions that we support and more than 450,000 uh, individuals that have pensions with us. Um, and as part of the risk management of uh, you know, providing those pensions, we have and we do use liability-driven investment. I think just as a little bit of background there, I think that's been prevalent in the UK for almost 20 years as a way to manage uh, the investments of pension schemes. And really very much, it just looks at, at the things that you need to pay, so your pensions uh, that you need to pay in the future, and tries to align your investments with those, uh, particularly around inflation. So, you know, that as we have uh, high inflation globally at the moment, we need to pay out more to our members because in real terms, you want them to have a good pension, and so in periods of high inflation, you want to make higher returns. Uh, fairly, fairly, you know, common sense, I would say. So, 
Ben, in, in terms of all the volatility that happened, you saw this huge spike in rates. Um, walk us through what was happening. Uh, then you had, and the professor was just talking about the crypto collapse. You had somebody backstop. You had the Bank of England come in in some ways to talk about, well, maybe we need to support the market here. We're going to buy some bonds, uh, calm things down. Where were they before uh, in terms of the current dynamics? How how are things settling? Talk us through what you see ha- having unfolded there. Uh, how how close to the brink were we? Did they save us? What 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 what's the current dynamic? <laughs> yeah, there's certainly lots of uh, stuff in the press around uh, you know how how disastrous it all was. I think the first thing to to note is that in general. Rising real rates uh, is, is good for pension, defined benefit pension schemes, but actually the uh, funding position of all those pension schemes improves as real yields go higher. Um, now, they have hedged some of the real rate exposure, and I, you know, I'm talking generally for the industry here, uh, but not all of it. And so as real yields increase, actually uh, most of those pensions moved into a, a greater amount of surplus. And if you look at uh, the uh, statistics produced uh, by the Pensions Protection Fund, which is the, the sort of lifeboat uh, if your corporate sponsor goes under for pensions in the UK. And the surplus for UK pension schemes uh, increased significantly um, this year uh, as real rates have been increasing from you know, extremely low levels at year end. Uh, you know, if you look at 30-year real yields, they were probably minus 2.5%. Um, and over the course of uh, the year, well, probably peaked at around plus one and a half to two percent. So, uh, what what all, what's all the panic around? That is the question, I guess. Um, clearly, uh, the change in government uh, and the revised plan for uh, uh, raising, uh, you know, well, lack, <laughs> increasing the amount of debt we were going to own as a as a country. And uh, the market reaction to that meant that there was a sharp rise in real yields, uh, which happened very quickly. And the knock-on effect of that was that UK pension schemes, not all, but some, uh, weren't able to meet the collateral calls that were required in the timeframes that were being uh, expected. And the speed of the move was really the thing that was the problem there. If you think over the course of the first seven or eight months of the year, actually real yields probably moved further than they did in that that very short period of time. But given the speed of the move, it was reasonably straightforward for pension schemes to adjust their asset allocation and meet any collateral calls that were needed. The problem really in September was the speed of the move. And uh, particularly for small pension schemes, we have uh, a lot of pension schemes in the UK, uh, but for the smaller ones where there isn't necessarily professional trustees and the advisors, uh, you know, maybe aren't uh, speaking to the pension scheme every day, the speed of the move really taught those ones out. And there was a number of uh, those that, which weren't able to get through the process of raising cash from other assets and supply it to LDI managers to meet collateral calls. And one of the things that happened there was clearly there was a feedback loop as the only things you could sell were government bonds to raise cash, that that was also moving the yields higher at the same time. Just got to stress here that actually my own pension scheme and the only one I'm actually worried about at this point uh, didn't have any concerns at all. And the fact that we are a very large pension scheme helps a lot in those scenarios because we run almost all the assets ourselves. And therefore, the speed of which we're able to react to market moves is, is very different from a smaller pension scheme. So thanks, Ben. Um, that, 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 those are all all great points, and I think it, it brings up a, a, an interesting topic. That and if you look at you know some of the language that was in the the Bank of England's um, uh, you know press releases around this intervention, it seemed like what they might have been targeting or what they might have been worried about was less how this rapid rise in in, in interest rates was going to um, impact plans like uh, uh, the one you work for, USS, and maybe more for those smaller plans uh, that were investing rather than in segre- you know, segregated accounts, but in pooled investment vehicles. Do you think that that's, uh, is that fair? Is that where you think um, the risk that they were uh, really most concerned with was, was focused? I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. Is it is the is the clear answer? I I, I sit with a, in a very large pension scheme, and I I no longer work at BlackRock and would 
would have seen those on a sort of day-to-day basis. I think it's there's definitely some of those were the, were the problem. I think maybe there's also pension schemes that were very well funded and have got more of their assets in less liquid things like infrastructure um, or property. And it's it's clear that some of those property funds uh, have been gated and therefore it's likely that there's been uh, attempts to take cash out of them that were probably larger than was able to be accommodated by some of those uh, property funds. I think the reality there is that um, the speed of the move in the gilt market was such that it was, uh, you know, unprecedented. And I, I run fixed income. We run a lot of emerging market debts. And if you look at real yield shifts in the UK, it was much more similar to the speed of move you might have seen in a in an emerging market, not a, not a developed market. And it's that speed of move that was really the problem for um, some of the large, well, some some pension schemes. Mm-hmm. I was often saying this year that the developed markets were the new emerging markets, that most of the developed markets were trading more like EM, like you have the Japan, the yen, how quickly that moved this year. Um, they're keeping their rates still at zero still. Uh, when we got all these moves around the world. Where do you think you are in the, the full cycle with where rates have moved? Um, and I don't want to talk more about what you, how you guys measure your pension, but you mentioned how, how much rates, the real rates have moved higher Um and and uh, I'm just sort of curious on your outlook for real rates. Is is do you think we've the most of the move has been done? Do you think real rates uh, from here tend higher or lower uh, if, over the next, like, call it three years? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a very tricky one. I think the first of all, most importantly, and I, you know, listening to the professor before, it's it quite interesting to hear his view uh, about you know what what's happening today and yesterday. I, I think the from our point of view. We're a pension scheme. I'm investing for pensioners for the next 100 years. And really, the things that happen today and tomorrow, they have an influence, but they, they shouldn't really be changing our very long-term strategies. As, as you know, And that's true of all you know, pension schemes. I think you know, it's, they should be long-term investors, and they should take a very long-term view. I think that's their biggest advantage. You know, as, a, as a pension scheme, we're not going to be as dynamic as, as a hedge fund. We're not going to be able to respond to market moves in the same in the same you know, millisecond as somebody that's uh, into that, you know, into the exchange that quickly. So you've got to play to your advantages. And I think it's very important that, you you know, you know where your advantage is. I, I don't have a strong view from here on where real yields go, but I do know that if inflation's high, I need to pay my pensioners more. And there's a real chance that that's possible. Um, and so I think, you know, our concerns are still around long-dated inflation and where that goes from here. And I think the knock-on effects of the last uh, 12 months are probably greater in Europe than they are in the US. The energy crisis has been more severe, and the knock-on onto, in, onto real wages has been more severe. And I think that it will take longer for that to play out. I also think we're not in the same paradigm as we were in the 70s, but if you look back at the history there, there was definitely you know, a whole decade or, or 15 years of, of inflation, but it wasn't continuous. You have periods where you had lots of inflation, and then it stopped and reset. And I think you run the risk that the same thing is likely to repeat, that, you know, that the Fed thinks it's done enough. Maybe market commentators think they've done enough. They ease back and, and you get another bout. And I think that's the, that's the real risk from a pension scheme's point of view. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to call the market next, next three weeks. Maybe the S&P will, you know, will, will, will reach new highs. But I think as a long-term investor, it's very important for us to just be very cognizant of the, the risk that we run and make sure we address those risks. Let me just... just one other thing that just... Go ahead. Sorry, just to play in. I, I think, you know, the dollar has been very strong for a good period of time. And, the, you know, the retracement of the dollar on the back of one inflation print was, was dramatic. And I think there was obviously a lot of... Um, positioning in that. But the, the one that really screams at the moment is the yen uh, dollar move. And, you know, where every central bank is raising rates and, and pulling liquidity out of the market, uh, the only one that hasn't is, is the yen. And the you know, Bank of Japan, for its own reasons, has chosen uh, not, not to do that as yet. But there's a lot of the funding trades to take leverage come from yen. And the size of the move as the thing started to unwind, that was definitely a bit of a canary in the coal mine moment. And I think that's one of those things we'll continue to watch carefully as those carry trades unwind for certain. 
Let me reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Ben Clissold, uh, Andrew O'Cronley. Uh, both have a lot of history in the LDI market, and, and Ben is managing a pension scheme that uses some of that. So, Ben, you talked about the size of your pension let you navigate the sort of capital calls or the margin calls on on these uh, levered bond exposures. Essentially, LDI is, is some element of levered bond exposures. Um you know, how, how did you guys think about managing through the sort of putting up the more collateral for some of those positions? Yeah, so I think because we're such a large scheme, um, we are able to manage our leverage, I guess, more holistically than, than a small scheme would. So we, we fund in dollars, uh, euros and sterling. And so we run leverage in all those uh, bond markets. So we use repo in, in, in dollars, uh, euros and sterling. So we have much more broader access to, to repo markets. And that, that definitely is helpful. As an open scheme as well, we are also able to run leverage in, in equities. So we use equity futures or forwards uh, and TRS. And then we run FX forwards to hedge uh, our FX exposure to non-sterling assets. We own a lot of dollar uh, infrastructure assets, for example, or tips. Um, and so we have a much better diversification than uh, some of the smaller schemes would ever be able to uh, to have. The second bit there is obviously large in-house team managing most of the assets. We're able to respond much more quickly to market to market movements than maybe others would. And so, you know, it's very easy for me to raise additional capital uh, to meet any margin calls as they fall due, and that's what my team essentially does uh, in the treasury side of that. I think the the other bit to note there is uh, it was a huge opportunity for us as a pension scheme. As I mentioned, we run quite a large proportion of our assets in, in non-sterling things, particularly in the in the US in tips. And the real yield differential between tips and index and gilts uh, moved by more than 200 basis points in that period. And so it's a very uh, reasonable thing for us to be doing, to be selling dollar assets, to realize gains on the dollar currency mate, uh, that we've made, but then to put those back into index and gilts at a higher yield differential than we, we've done into the TIPS app. And so, you know, it's a huge opportunity for us as a pension scheme to make money for our members and improve our funding position. Uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a very hectic period for us, but mainly because there's great opportunities for us to make money for, uh, for our pension scheme. Yeah, Ben, I, I saw in the press release that, um, you know, throughout this, uh, you know, market turmoil, the doom loop that, that was occurring, uh, your plan was actually, you know, at, at much more attractive prices, um, purchasing uh, uh, long-dated government bonds, adding to your hedge. Uh, do you think that, um, and I guess this is starting to, you know, talk about where we go from here, do you think that most uh, UK, um, uh, U- UK-defined benefit plans have maintained their liability hedges? Do you think those are still in place? Um, uh, you know, even even if some of them had to um, had to sell some of the, the the gilts that they owned, where do you think we go from here as far as that hedging is concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you've got to remember that almost all these pension schemes they haven't just done LDI in the last year; they've been doing it for a very long period of time. Some of them for as long as twenty years, and this has worked extremely well for them over that period where they've been protected from interest rates going lower uh, for a long period of time. And I don't think that means that they will change uh, tack in any time soon. I think, you know, just as a little bit of history, actually LDI didn't start in the UK, it started in the Netherlands. And so it's the large Dutch schemes that were first adopters of, of LDI type strategies. But that quickly uh, you know, transferred into the UK market. I think the big challenge, and this is, you know, one of the reasons we go global and the reason we own so many tips, is that the UK market is relatively small compared to its defined benefit pension schemes. And so the fact that, uh, you know, they are such a large holder of UK government debt um, is in itself, you know, part of the problem. Uh, The market isn't as large as it it would be in the US. And, you know, if you think about the US defined benefit pension schemes that own, you know, tips or or treasuries, they're a much smaller proportion of the total size of the market. (coughs) So, you know, although they, they do LDI type things, uh, they aren't in any way going to move the market in the same way as that happened in the UK. So just to answer your question, Andrew, I think there were some schemes that probably had to reduce their hedges uh, at some point over the past couple of months. I don't, I don't know that for certain, but I'd be very surprised if those pension schemes weren't at this point now back, back in trying to add to those hedges. I also think because uh, schemes funding has improved, you'll see a lot of 
than go into buy-in or buy-out sort of uh, solutions. <clears throat> yeah, and for I guess for those plans, um, you know the the. The, the issue that, that, that you've raised and that, you know, you've certainly seen in the press um, has been obviously the, and the important distinction that this wasn't a solvency issue, as many of the plans are now in a better funding position now, but more of a liquidity issue. Um, it, it's, it's fair to assume that if a, if, if a pension plan went into the year, um, you know, with a, a small allocation to illiquids or less liquid uh, investments, that that's probably increased in size now. Um, and, you know, so... To the extent that um, the pension plans are going to continue to implement LDI strategies, um, how do uh, is there a rethink that's kind of required of this structure where you know you've sort of seen uh, that if 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 you get a hundred basis point spike in yields uh, that you sort of enter into this you know pretty large unwind um, now that that genie's sort of out of the bottle um, do, do you think there's going to be a broader industry rethink and maybe Maybe it's uh, more of a uh, of a preference or a move towards the types of strategies, you know, the segregated account strategies and and the, the like of what you're you're currently doing at USS. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to run a segregated account for for very small clients. I think that's you know, I think it's probably the large asset managers that run LDI programs for pension schemes probably push people into pool type solutions because that was more efficient for them and more profitable for them in the long run. I don't think that's changed. I think probably what the changes there is that those asset managers um, require less leverage, higher, you know, amounts of collateral uh, so that they can withstand larger rate moves. I think the reality there is that if you looked at history in the UK market back to when index and gilts were first issued in 1981, the largest move you saw ever was, you know, 100 basis points in any 12-month period. The reality there is we saw a lot more than that in a, already this this year. And so the only natural response to that is that you hold much larger collateral buffers. And I, I think what you've seen, and I'm second guessing here what the Bank of England's chose to, chosen to, to do, but the reality there is I don't think they would have stepped away if they thought was a reasonable probability that they'd have had to step back in. And they were very much in dialogue with, with all the asset managers, including ourselves, about how we were and what our situation was and they must have felt very reassured that they wasn't going to be a return to the chaos if they stepped if and when they stepped away and they announced last night that uh, they are going to unwind the emergency uh, you know uh, buying program uh, starting from the 29th of November uh, in a you know in an orderly way so I think what, what you what what you see there is probably you know most asset managers being very comfortable now with the levels of buffer that they're holding and those buffers being of the order of magnitude of 300 or 400 basis points of move in the gilt market. And that, you know, probably gives the bank a lot more confidence in what's, what, what sort of moves we can withstand before anything has to, has to be done about it. Well, well, Andrew and Ben, we we have to take a halftime break, but uh, I think this where you just left it, Ben, on the Bank of England thinks they're going to exit these positions in an orderly move will be a good place for us to jumpstart. What? How do they? What is going to be orderly? Uh, part of their sort of reducing their balance sheets would cause some of this to start. Uh, so this will be an interesting question of of where things go, how this is all working. We've been talking to two great guests. We have Ben Clissold, Andrew O'Cronley. They're here with us for the hour, talking about interest rates. Uh, and sort of technicals of what's happening in the UK bond market. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. And we were just talking about uh, where the, the Bank of England is going to um, try to get through their emergency purchases. Ben, do you think that itself, um, you know, the, part of what set this off was the, through the monetary policy, the Bank of England saying they've been doing all this quantitative easing, they're going to start selling bonds. Where are they in their policy? You think they're going to be able to successfully thread the needle, get out of these bonds that they purchased? Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes, I think they will. I think um, there's two parts of the quantitative tightening program that the Bank of England's uh, got ongoing. Uh, they've got their, their standard QT program where they're going to sell down what they've uh, purchased as the you know main QE program over the last 10 or 15 years. They've been quite clear about uh, what they're looking to do there and the time frame for doing that. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll sell, I think, 85 billion in the next 12 months. I, that that program will, will sort of run 
as advertised, and I don't think they'll have problems with that. Um, the bit that's more difficult is the runoff of the uh, sort of the emergency program. Uh, there was an announcement from the bank uh, yesterday around that. The details, um, well, there'll, there'll be more details to come, but the details sort of suggested that there will be more of a reverse inquiry. Uh, so they will allow people to come to them and ask uh, to purchase bonds. I think that uh, is a sensible way for them to go about it. They won't be forcing the bonds into the market on a a prescriptive time frame. And I think what you'll see there is that a lot of the pension schemes that were uh, maybe for sellers of some of those index-linked guilts uh, will will be coming back to, to buy them. Um, and, you know, that won't happen instantaneously, but I think it will happen over the course of a period of time. Very interesting. So part of what created this situation, it seems, is, you know, we talked about the leverage in the system and, and, and talk through why, you know, going back to the first principle, why are people using leverage for this LDI? What's the benefit? What are they doing in their portfolios? What, what are they doing with any freed up capital? Like what's the total, what is the total leverage in the system you think uh, that these pensions are using? Yeah, so I guess the the idea really is that you want to uh, manage your liability risks, um, hence using LDI. So invest in things that give you inflation-linked cash flows in the long term, and that essentially means buying long-dated interest uh, rate-sensitive uh, products, usually government bonds that are very safe, uh, that give you inflation protection. So indexed in gilts. The problem with that is that you get a gilt return. You know, it's not particularly great, and so. Uh, you don't want to tie up all your assets just to match your liabilities in indexed and gilts and uh, not generate the re- additional returns you'd expect to make over the long term in equities. So essentially, uh, your standard pension scheme, and we'll just say, started from an 80% funding position. So they've got 80 in assets and 100 in liabilities. And what they want to do is, is make sure that they match their liabilities, the sensitivities to interest rates and inflation, is not completely, but to some extent. And so... You'll take half your assets, say 40 in this case, and you'll lever them twice uh, and buy some indexed and gilts with those. So you take an indexed and gilt that you've purchased, you send it out on repo, you take the cash and you buy another indexed and gilt. And that allows you to have uh, a total asset base now of, you started with 80, but you've borrowed 40. So you've got 120, so you're 50% leveraged. And that allows you to keep 40 of your assets in equities. Now, it might not be equities, but equity-type assets that are going to generate you additional return over the long run. And so that was a fairly standard setup for most UK pension schemes. And as uh, time goes on and you generate additional returns, and you go from 80 to 90, you say, uh, of assets relative to 100 of liabilities, you're able to pay down a little bit of that uh, leverage, and you deleverage over time. And essentially, the idea there is that you manage the risk that's inherent in your liabilities, uh, interest rates and inflation, as well as keep as much assets as possible on on uh, you know risky type returns that give you additional returns in the long run. Did any of the the dynamics of the shape of the yield curve, the spread you could get in the that tips market, you know, so for a while you talked about how we always have gone up 200 base points, you had negative real yields here uh, at the beginning of the year. Did any of that change the calculus? Does an inverted curve change the calculus for the benefits of this leverage? Yeah, so if you you think about uh, how that works, I mean, given that you're investing that leverage in government bonds, the fact the shape of the yield curve changes means that the yield on your government bond changes, and so your funding uh, actually doesn't really get impacted too much because your six-month borrowing cost is reflected in the yield curve, but it's also reflected in the six-month rate on your gilt. And so those two things are awash generally. Uh, And so if you think about the gilt that you purchased not as actually a gilt, uh, which is 30 years in in, uh, maturity, it's actually a six-month loan with a 29-and-a-half-year interest rate exposure from six months' time, then net-net, those two things just net out, and your increased uh, interest rate cost of the borrowings is netted against the interest rate that you're getting on your guilt. So those things sort of are quite smooth and work quite well and efficiently in, in that in that way. I guess the other bit there to note is that, in general, uh, they've been this year very good carrying assets. So the fact you've had an index in guilt that you've got as a real with start of the year with a real yield at minus two percent, uh, but you're realising inflation at twelve, 
Um, I mean, that's just a great carrying asset for you as well. Unfortunately, uh, also means your liabilities are carrying at the same rate. Uh, so not so great because uh, it's not actually making you money. It's just offsetting what you're having to pay on your liability. But that's the whole point about the liability-driven investment. The two things are matched, and you're uh, it's working. You're doing better out of that. It's working. Andrew, you know, you you had some experience in the U.S. I think one of the questions is the risk that happened, where you had this funding issue. Uh, it, it seemed more of a liquidity issue, but but cascaded into this much higher move rate. What's your sense? Is this from your experience any any commentary on how the U.S. market differs from the U.K. market? Uh, any comments you want to make there? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think the short answer is. Uh, is no, that there's not, I don't think, uh, nearly the same level of risk of a, of a, again, a protracted significant rise in, in, in bond yields leading to the same types of liquidity collateral issues in the U.S. And the, the most glaring reason for that is just the um, prevalence of you know, synthetic derivative-based liability hedging uh, on behalf of U.S. pension plans is, is much uh, it, it's much less prevalent than it is in the UK. The 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 reasoning for that, I think, is a, is a longer answer, and it gets into some of the more uh, uh, kind of uh, nerdy specifics about both um, pension and fixed income market, uh, uh, you know, characteristics in the US versus the UK. But a lot of it's, it are, are things that Ben's already touched on, right? The the inflation sensitivity or, or inflation linkage of um, defined benefit um, uh, plans in the UK means that they have much longer durations. Uh, the relative size of the UK um, uh, government bond market relative to the pension system uh, means that there's just fewer liability matching assets uh, for the defined benefit plans to go out and buy in the UK. So you combine those things with um, you know some differences in the in the governance structure of UK pension plans and, and, and the US. And what you get is, you know, most US plans can can do LDI um, just by going out and buying, you know, uh, the, uh, some of the large liquid universe of treasuries, zero coupon treasuries and US corporate investment grade corporate bonds and get most of their liability hedging that they need that way without having to go out and, uh, you know, utilize leverage. That's not to say that there's there's no... Um, you know, leverage or interest rate derivatives that, that, that U.S. corporate pension plans use. There certainly is, but not nearly to the extent uh, uh, that, that you see in the U.K. or in um, yeah, uh, the Netherlands, uh, as Ben mentioned. In, in, in terms of, if you were to say there's an estimate of what percentage of or, or how big in total size the exposure is to LDI in the UK and the total exposure of that in the US. Any sense of the total sizes of, of dollars we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's been, um, you know, the, 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 there's there's different ways to try try to get to that answer. But I think, you know, if you back out from kind of the size of the defined benefit pension, um, um, you know, liabilities uh, in each region, you know, most estimates for the US uh, are that you have LDI exposure kind of in the near the $2 trillion uh, uh, dollar, uh, mark um, and, you know, in kind of like the one, one to $1.5 trillion um, uh, size in USD in, in, in the UK. I'll, I'll see if Ben agrees with those numbers. Um, but when you compare, importantly, right, it, it's almost less relevant what that overall size is compared to what that looks like relative to the amount of hedging assets or fixed income universe that, that's out there. Um, you know, that's that's probably, you know, ab- about 10 percent of the eligible hedging um, fixed income universe in the U.S. Uh, in the U.K., it's 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 likely greater than 50 percent. And, you know, I've seen, you know, some estimates that, uh, you know, it's closer to 75 percent or so of uh, of what's out there. But I'll, I'll let Ben add. Yeah, and no, I, mean, I think that's, that's, that's all uh, pretty accurate, as I would say, Andrew. But I, one, one other way of looking at it. There isn't many open defined benefit pension schemes left in the UK. I don't, there's not a FTSE 100 company that has a open defined benefit pension scheme. Um, but we are still open, uh, you know, and supported by the universities, and will remain open for forever, as far as uh, you know. I'm concerned, or the, the sponsors are concerned. But we accrue about two billion of liabilities a year. Uh, we have that many members contributing to their pensions. If you think that two billion of money was just going to be going to use in the index and guilt market, 
we would be buying two billion. Uh, the UK government is only going to issue 28 billion of index-linked gilts this year, so we will be seven and a half percent of total issuance, and that's just one pension scheme. That that's quite a lot. That that's why we have to buy tips and uh, Bundy eyes or OATIs because the reality there is we, we, we would be too big just to use the UK market. Yeah, that that is an interesting question. One of the reasons why these rates and the and the real yield pressure is so low. It comes back to like how we started the question earlier in the conversation. We were asking like, where are real yields? There's a lot of demand for those tips securities, uh, and and we we've talked uh, with Professor Siegel. He he has this view that rates are lower. You know, that their equilibrium real rates are lower. And it comes back to even sort of the Powell comments: is are we overly tight or not? Um, you know, and 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 basically, where rates have moved today, we could argue maybe we're. We're overly tight on on the on the economy, but there is any other comments on who's buying these these tips yields? Um, is it is it is it beyond the pension schemes? I mean, we're generally a seller of tips into index and gills at the moment, so it's not us, right? <laughs> um, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Ben Clissold uh, of USS Investment Management, Overseas Pension Allocations, Andrew O'Cronley, Director of Allocation at, on my team at Wisdom Tree. Ben, we, we've talked a lot about the this sort of gilt market and, and the bond market. As you think about equities uh, and sort of having a very long-term time horizon, have you used any of this volatility to rotate anywhere around the world? Have you been thinking about the, the volatility? You mentioned the UK uh, is for selling tips to buy UK gilts. Uh, anything else that you're doing across the portfolio that's interesting? Yeah, it's a good question. I think... Um not, not particularly in equity. I think, as, as we, I sort of mentioned before, we're a very long-term investor, and I don't think that the, you know, the immediate changes in, in markets at this point have, have caused us to do anything overly dramatic in equity. In general, I think we're underweight equities to where we might strategically be in the long, long term, but only marginally. And I think, yeah, it's is that from a valuation perspective? Is that from a valuation yeah, perspective? From a valuation perspective, really. And I think, um, I guess, just some general concerns around, uh, you know, the economic growth outlook, uh, you know, in the U.S. Uh, as, as inflation bites a bit, but also, I guess, in some of the geopolitical worries that we have with, with China, with Russia, uh, and, and where, you know, those things play out in the, in, in the medium term, particularly, you know, greater protectionism, uh, shortening of supply lines back into more stable regions at the uh, the extent that that will cost you money as a corporate, but you think it's the same, the right thing to do. Uh, those sorts of things weighing on uh, equity returns in the, you know, the short to medium term, I guess, are the, are the main sort of drivers there. Ben, um, you know, you, you, you've talked about how one of the uh, objectives uh, of all, you know, pension pension schemes in the UK is, um, guaranteeing or, or investing for the long-term ability to meet uh, inflation-linked benefit payments. So hedging inflation, protecting purchasing power is clearly paramount. That's obviously a theme that goes beyond just pension funds. And, you know, everyday investors uh, across, you know, the, the, the world right now are focused on longevity risk and being able to maintain purchasing power in the face of, um, you know, inflation uncertainty. Um, you know, Aside from, I guess, explicit um, uh, inflation hedging, you know, with with, with tips and and with uh, uh, index-linked gilts in the UK, um, how are how are you thinking about hedging uh, inflation? Um, you know, m- maybe b- beyond just the fixed income portfolio or beyond just the government bond portfolio. Um, and I know that I know that historically there's definitely been a um, um, a push, I, I believe, from the UK government to think about things like infrastructure and property. Um, that may be a challenge for some uh, smaller pension plans now, uh, given li- liquidity issues. But but what's your view on you know inflation um, uh, hedging outside of bonds? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I think we we want to target you know equities that give us good inflation protection, real real growth, and and we do own property and infrastructure assets, and uh, an allocation into commodities. All those things help. I guess the other bit as a UK pension scheme one of the things that's likely to cause short-term inflation in the UK is weakness in sterling. So we generally like to own dollar assets or euro assets and not, not fully currency hedge those. Uh, those. Those are all things that, you know, contribute well. We also run a, a, um, a large global uh, emerging market debt portfolios. 
so helping those those things and we run a lot of those that are inflation linked so you can get good inflation protection in places like mexico brazil south africa that give you you know diversified inflation uh, protection in the government bond markets and those have done very well this year if you didn't those give you equity type returns but uh with inflation protection you know that i'd, I'd sort of diversified inflation linked emerging market debt portfolios up 10 percent this year against the s p dip being down 20. Well, that's a sort of yeah useful inflation linked type protection from a from a pension team's point of view when does uh we have only have two minutes left but when when do you think european equities become cheap enough that you're sort of selling other assets to buy european equities yeah it's a bit of a flippant answer but i'm not sure they ever will um it's yeah it's tricky isn't it I mean, look, uk equities always look relatively cheap and the dividend yields always look very uh you know very good but it they always do it doesn't necessarily mean they they ever catch up and i think you've got to just think about the growth you see in u.s equities uh relative to european equities and the innovation that you know the u.s drives drives those equity returns and it doesn't feel like you have that same sort of innovation in Europe. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't form part of your portfolio as a diversification, but it, I don't know, I think we'd rather look to the Far East for those sorts of long dated, you know, generation of, of wealth uh, for the equity holders. Well, this has been very interesting, um, and I, I, I got to say, you, you, this uh, this has been one of the most interesting stories of this year. A lot of movement in rates, and this was one of the most interesting movements in rates. It's been really a pleasure getting to talk to Ben uh, Ben Clissold here of the USS Investment Management, who oversees a big pension portfolio. Uh, really a great pleasure, uh, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Andrew O'Cronley, who's on my team, uh, also a lot of great experience uh, for um, for this exact conversation. Ben, hopefully you will come back to share views in the future on how things are going, any latest updates as these these situation develops. Uh, but thanks so much for, for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks for our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, our producer, Patty Hall. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.